0: Welcome to Beyond the Fundamentals. It is important, in my opinion, to listen very closely to what we're going to cover today in this video. cannot overemphasize what we're going to talk about today with faith. Uh, if, If everyone could get a hold of this, it would drastically change the entire country's relationship to faith, if everybody could get a hold of it. It could change your church. It could change you it could change your life right as we move forward in beyond the fundamentals what i am going to do is i'm going to take a more a more emphatic catalyzing approach toward prodding growth one of the things on this channel has been i am on a journey of faith and i invite you to follow me along on that and as we've been on this one of the main things we've done so far is we've completely debunked and refuted calvinism And as we have done that, it has led us to discover the underlying things which produced Calvinism in the first place. Okay. Um, And underneath that, there are vulnerabilities and issues that we can fix, that we can address, that we can understand better. And we can have a better, more meaningful relationship with everything to which we can be connected in our lives previously we did a video on the mammon church and this was a very pivotal concept that we covered most of the church most of the church to which we are exposed i would say is within this mammon church realm all right i've i have never been in a church where it would not be that but it is our what is ours to do is to build something that is not mammon church, but is the logos religio, the logos religion. That is what we want to build. Okay. And I'm inviting you to partner with me as I do that. And if you come from a traditional Christian background, I'm going to be intentionally trying to poke and prod you to grow and, and follow along and follow along on this growth trajectory on this journey of faith that we're taking to become more like, the Logos manifest in the flesh Jesus Christ to become more like the best version of your sacred second self that you could possibly be we are going to be looking at James Fowler's stages of faith and looking at his concepts um, I will show you a little more in the video what part two is going to be about but there's some very helpful things in his book about the stages of faith and I want to connect the mammon, the concept of the Mammon Church, what we don't want to be, down here. It's what we don't want to be. And by the way, there is a video called the Mammon Church. Go watch that video. I would say that it's a prerequisite to understanding this one. In this video, we compared a lot of things. Everything on the top has a corresponding element on the bottom. What's on the top is what you want to aim for. What is on the bottom is what you don't want to aim for. Or maybe on the top is a fruit of doing something right, of interacting with God properly. These things are either what you want to aim for or fruits of aiming for the proper thing. Now, in this, we have two different versions of faith, okay? The bottom faith, which is what I grew up with as a Baptist, what is And what I would say, if you spent any time in American Christianity, is what you grew up with. Faith is, in the Mammon Church, a moralistic commitment to affirm systematically disambiguated propositions. Absent phenomenal or epistemic veracity. Stuff like this. Your statement of faith. The Baptist faith and message. the What we believe section on the church's website. It's a bunch of propositions. <clears throat> but faith in the Logos religion is an agopic interactive social connectedness and commitment to fortify the healthy bonds of tension with all meaningful entities and activities in life. All right. That's my stab at a short definition of what we're going to be aiming at today. And this whole video is going to be a an expansion on that definition. All right. Um, we are in the middle of what we would call I had a, I had a slide for this. I'm not sure where I put it. What I would call a, a meaning crisis. And if you've watched any of John Verveke's stuff, you would say there's a meaning crisis. And there's also uh, what you would call a a meta crisis. And a meta crisis is a is a cluster of much larger crises. For example, all the things that broke down when uh, when the COVID so-called pandemic hit. Okay those were not a result of covid itself per se those were a result of bad decisions in response to covid and the things that are in place that resulted in those bad decisions being implemented is those are symptoms of the meta crisis okay and so john Verveke focuses on the meaning crisis and within the meaning crisis I think one of the things that is ours to do is to think about the meaning crisis within Christianity, specifically fundamentalist Christianity, because that's the background that I came from, and I want to extend a helping hand back to those who were suffering from the immobility with which I was inflicted when I was there, and help pull people out. All right. When the Bible says, uh, be sure your sins will find you out, the sins that found me out later in life were... The rigid commitment to religious ideology. That was my big sin. All right? It wasn't drugs or sleeping around or smoking, or it wasn't any of that stuff. It was a rigid commitment to religious ideology, and that is what I am paying for right now, OK? And I don't want other people to have to go through that, all right? And there's generations of that. So that's what we're aiming for here. The Mammon church over here on the right if you look on the left, this is a reduction of James Fowler's stages of faith, and he breaks it down into six stages. What the Mammon church does, I have a connection between the Mammon church and stages two and three of faith, all right? What it does for a society, what the Mammon church does for a society, even for atheists, is it accomplishes the systematic corralling of entire societies into stage two and three of development and it systematically stultifies growth beyond this point. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a professing Christian or not. Okay. But because like even atheists, I've been talking to several atheists lately online and they are addressing the concept of faith from the same bad premises that Christians do. So they have, they both have the same problem. It's like Calvinists and provisionists; They still have the same problem. Okay. A provisionist has the same root problem of which Calvinism is a symptom and they don't understand that. And an atheist has the same root problem of which ideological fundamentalist Christianity is a symptom. And they don't understand that they're both in stages two and three of life growth. And because they're both based on the same false premises and false models of whatever God is. All right. It's a, it's a fouled up interface of the finite with the infinite on both accounts. On both accounts, they're doing the same thing. And what I've noticed, um, you know, I was talking with some other people, um, some good friends of mine, and they've noticed that when you talk to unchurched people, you can get them on a good growth trajectory much faster than you can do with churched people, which I've had this suspicion for a while now that being churched, is more harmful and be in a mammon church it does more harm than good because if we're trying to go to logos religion up here now we have to take people that are in the mammon church which is all of us and unlearn things and retrain and try it again and reteach and undo and redo so when a mammon church person goes and reads the Bible they're seeing mammon church stuff because that's what <laughs> my props are getting out of control here. That's what this kind of thing has made salient to them. This has shaped the salience and relevance landscape so that when you look at this, you still only see this. We have to undo that. We have to undo that. And that's, that's a serious problem. It's, it's a hard problem and I don't exactly know how to do it. So faith crisis is part of the meaning crisis which is part of the meta crisis, and if we can resolve the faith crisis i think that is the starting point to start resolving all the other kinds of meaning crisis symptoms that are that are out there symptoms and causes okay when we say the word belief so let's let's get right into this when we say the word belief like i believe in hell and heaven in the Trinity, in the hypostatic Union, whatever you want to say, we are using we are mistakenly using the word belief as something like affirm or to assert or to confirm, or to certify or to concur or to believe or a belief. I already have belief there. Let's get rid of that. Or to ratify or vouch or assent or agree or a vow or to have, because we're in having mode, or to deem something, or to posit something, or to be convinced of. And we use it in this way with regard to propositions being the object of belief. What do you mean by that? We believe, I believe that the Trinity is a true doctrine. I believe that the hypostatic union is true. I believe that hell is real. When the Bible, it's believed on the lord jesus christ like i have faith and believe in jesus believe on jesus believe jesus it's a i have faith in my wife i don't believe that particular things now there's an underlying understanding of her ontological reality etc and so forth um But that's not what I mean when I say I believe in her. It's not that I'm believing in her existence. I'm believing in her commitment to our shared centers of value and power, shared centers of value and influence that we both recognize as we trudge forward in this life, that we will act in a way that is commensurate with what is expected and deserved by the other, because we are partners together. Now, what this kind of belief does, it is just propositional because propositions are the object of the belief rather than um, other rather than real things okay so one of the problems with mammon church like we looked at in our chart notice how big propositional knowledge is up here down here okay it's almost all propositions but up here in the logos religion we have an equal balance of participatory perspectival procedural and propositional and we're constantly moving back with, between all four kinds of knowing so it's incumbent upon us to understand all four kinds of knowing this is a fundamental thing a very fundamental thing so we want all four kinds of knowing participatory the deepest kind perspectival and procedural we have a video from the late September with John Verveke on this channel where he explains the four kinds of knowing I highly encourage you to go watch that If you want to dig a little deeper in the four kinds of knowing because that's, that is something you need to know. All right. And when I say I'm prodding you to grow, I'm expecting you to watch videos. I'm expecting you to come along. I'm expecting you to watch videos, read books, read articles. I'm expecting you to improve yourself, incorporate an ecology of practices that helps you become a better you, become more attentive, take some focus factor pills, do something to improve yourself and become a better version of you. And what I'm offering to you is a, a journey where we can do this together that's that's all I'm offering you and if that's not what you want to do this might be not, might not be the place but that's what that's where we're headed and that's where I want to go and that's where I want you to come with me now if we look at integral theory and we look at faith and how Christians use the word faith typically okay now I know there's some Christians who don't use it this way and by the way I have to put these disclaimers up here because of those of you who are still in stage two and three who think I'm backsliding when I mention things like this. Beyond the Fundamentals does not necessarily endorse all of Integral Theory, but finds it useful as a model. You do understand that. Now, in Integral Theory, uh, basically it tracks mankind through its growth and trajectory as things become better and improve and mankind becomes more capable of doing more epistemically and spiritually sound things, right? More meaningful things ideally, right? Well, there is a stage down here, the magical stage, this purple stage, the magical stage, and that's where a lot of Christians are. Um Christians mistakenly act and think. This is this is the unconscious bad premise that is in a lot of Christians heads. This is what they think. This is how they're operating. They mistakenly act and think as if faith is a means by which we can magically take non-epistemically warranted propositions and put them into the ontological truth domain. Okay? I'll take something that maybe won't upset a lot of you. The Mormons believe in something called planet Kolob. All right? Now, if we're going to discover a planet and make an ontological propositional truth claim that planet Kolob exists... You know, we can we can argue whether or not Pluto is a planet, right? But we have some kind of evidence that Pluto is out there. You can look up in the sky and you can see Jupiter. But when somebody says planet Kolob exists, what's your epistemic basis for saying that? Well, there isn't any. I cannot take the concept of faith and make Kolob exist. I cannot do that. And for somebody calling call themselves a Christian to think that you can do that, I can make the Trinity exist. By, by having faith in it, or I can make uh, modalism exist by having faith in it. I can make the, hypo- you cannot make any of these things. You cannot take them out of hypothesis into the fact category by faith. That's not what faith is for. That's not what faith does. But because we use it that way, okay, our atheist counterparts think that we're a bunch of morons. And for a large part, they're correct that we are because we're using faith in the wrong way but then they in turn also see faith in the wrong way so because of this and i'm going to read this again christians mistakenly act and think as if faith is a means by which we can magically take non-epistemically warranted propositions and put them into the ontological truth domain you cannot use faith to do that okay separate your domains so for this reason non-christians tend to think that christians use the concept of faith magically and lazily which is correct (laughs) to magically make to magically and lazily make epistemic rigor go away and that perception is not completely unfounded let's be honest the scientific method is difficult becoming educated in any particular domain becoming an expert Spending the, the 10,000 hours to become an expert in any particular domain. It takes quite a bit of effort. And it's, it's, it's pretty easy to not spend the time to become an expert in any particular domain. And just faith it away. Wish it away with faith. I used to have a boss when I was in the Army. And my XO, when I was deployed the first time, my XO would tell me, when I was working everything through, I had to, I was the S6 and I had to be... I had to be the ALOC commander, which was I had to be the S1, the S4, and the S6 for a detachment that was leaving Iraq and going to Kuwait in advance in preparation for the redeployment. And he, as we were preparing for this, one of his sayings that he would say over and over again is Kevin, don't wish anything away. You got to work through everything. And then he would say it the other way around sometimes. Don't you got to work through everything. Don't wish anything away. That stuck with me. And I think Christians have a problem where we use the concept of faith to just wish things away. That's not what faith is for. Okay. We need to understand that. Let's see what we have in some of the comments section. Some interesting stuff. Maybe we'll get to some of that later. I want to get through this content. I appreciate everybody who is in the comment section. It is good to see you there, and it's good uh, to have you, all the all the viewers here watching as well. Hebrews 11.1 one says, "Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen." And I like to stress, not the hope and the not seen, but the substance and the evidence. There's something. Uh, what do you mean, something not seen? what if I'm a bodybuilder and I want to put on 20 pounds of muscle well if I have faith that I will have substance and evidence for that okay you might see uh protein shakes and gym equipment and sweat towels there will be some evidence that I have faith toward this thing which you cannot see yet okay if I want to build a bridge you can't see the bridge yet but you have to there is substance and evidence of the thing that cannot yet be seen and the faith moves toward that thing. Think about Noah. What, there was a time when there was no boat, and he had, to start with, he had to start somewhere and build one. And before the boat was there, there was substance and evidence that there was going to be one, even though you couldn't see it yet. Okay? Something like that. Faith is not a magical way where we make non-epistemically warranted things true. I believe that and then we say something about God or heaven or the devil or hell or spirits or angels or something like that which I believe that there's a guardian angel watching over each one of our children you know we don't use faith to make things true like that that's not how faith is used and if you look through Hebrews 11 I don't expect you to read this small print but if you can see the little blue things in there what I have done is I've gone I did a little exercise where I just highlighted all the action words and phrases or in some cases toward the end things that happened to people um, because they changed the way that they worded things okay and you can see that through faith they subdued kingdoms and wrought righteousness and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched uh, the violence of fire and escaped the edge of the sword and waxed valiant and fight turned to flight the armies of the aliens Um, All these verbs, diligently seek, translated, pleased God, moved with fear, prepared an ark, went out, sojourned, dwelling, looked, received strength, was delivered, having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, embraced them and confessed them, desire. Does this sound like you're just sitting, does this sound like people who are sitting around uh, using some kind of uh, magical epistemic workaround to make things true that aren't true? No, these people are doing things. This guy's out there building a boat to save his family. He's doing something. Noah, being moved with fear, uh, uh, being warned of God, as thing's not yet seen, moved. He moved his tail, got off his blessed assurance, started walking, doing something, okay? He moved with fear and prepared an ark. He did something, okay? Abraham. Uh, he when he was tried, he offered up Isaac. he did something he didn 't just believe something he did something in conjunction with his belief there was There was an action there okay? uh, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence also he received him in a figure, and he put his money where his mouth is so He didn't think Isaac was gonna stay dead if he killed him. He thought he would have to kill him and God would bring him back, but he was still gonna go through with it. Now, what you have here is in the book of Genesis, you have what is essentially the opposite of Cain. Cain would not offer up an acceptable sacrifice to the future, to God. Abraham, on the other hand, was able to offer the most prized asset that he had. So the, the fractal moral of the story in your life this is the opposite of cain's sin abraham offered up his most prized and cherished asset and trusted it to the future trusted it to god despite the apparent immediate cost and sacrifice Um, jordan peterson would say voluntarily adopt responsibility and be willing to suffer the cost of that of having adopted that responsibility and then you bounce back from that cost stronger than you were before that's another way to say that so this whole thing that that is the fractal pattern that's the fractal pattern by the way speaking of the fractal pattern i found out that they're making a live action well live action version of pinocchio coming out i don't know if you can really call it live action or like way better cartoon you know but that kind of thing That'll be interesting when that comes out because Pinocchio is a, is a good fractal story too. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. He, what, he had multi-generational foresight, like those people who can build a cathedral that isn't going to be finished for 120 years. And so you have two and three and four generations of people working on this one thing that many of these project managers never get to see completed. they have faith in the completion and you see substance and evidence of the faith of its completion even though they never see it all right but it's still coming they commit themselves to it and then i'm not going to go through hebrews 11 anymore but you understand what these people did Uh, you can read it as well i want to make sure i just lost the chat so i want to make sure that we're still going looks like we're still going So I'm not sure why that happened. It's bizarre. Bizarre kind of thing that happens. Which I really wish wouldn't happen. And it is. You can consider this a pause for all of you who think that I talk too fast. When these little hiccups happen, (laughs) you can just be thankful that I stopped so you have time to think. Now today, I put part one on this because today I want to focus on part, I want to focus on some of the definitions that Fowler gives us in his book. What I wanted to do in the same video was also talk about some of the things we get in this book. James P. Kars wrote a book, The Religious Case Against Belief. Now I recommend both of these books and they should be read for sure. Do I believe everything each, each of these books say? you ought to know better than that. Okay. And I, but I have to give that disclaimer because we have so many lowbrow thinkers in the audience who want to accuse you of worshiping everybody you (laughs) mention. So today we're going to focus on some things that we find in the book stages of faith. I'm not putting these slides anywhere that other people can have because, um, it is, I'm largely reproducing what is in this book. You see my copy. Here's how I reproduce some of this stuff. My books all apart because I ripped it open and and OCR copied everything so, so that I have, so that I have it digitally. Cause you can't, as far as I know, can't get it digitally. At least not a very good digital copy. So I want to share this with you. I want you to think about the concept of faith and follow along as we look at some of these excerpts from this book stages of faith by James Fowler and I want to understand what I want to hear what you think. I'm going to have to bring my chat over from YouTube over here. So I can follow along because I lost my restream chat. And Jamie Russell says, "Y'all can hear me." All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Let's see if I can get out of the way for you. He says to say that this will be a personal book and that you can look um this is the book the, the bibliography is here's the book on the left hand side and down at the bottom it tells you what page i'm on okay so if you want to read this book i highly get you encourage you to read this book i'm not gonna there's of course the book is chock full of great things all right and i'm not going to be reading all of it to you but i want to point out some things that can help shape our thoughts and as we move forward on this channel and as you move forward in your life you can shape how you're thinking with this and and use this to move away from a mammon church concept which is what we are trying to do very intentionally he says to say that this will be a personal book does not mean that it is purely subjective a mere sharing of anecdotes and fantasies or a self-indulgent confessional filled with solipsistic universals. as i hope will become obvious i'm committed to rigorous examination and clarification of the meanings we share this intends to be a book of responsible scholarship and research but to communicate and bring its truths to expression we will have to write and read in personal ways. You may find yourself saying, I know nothing of faith. I'm not religious. I'm not sure there's anything I really believe. Why should I involve myself in a conversation about faith? If so, I hope you will read further as I try to clarify the dynamics of faith and the ways we go about making and maintaining meaning in life. I hope you will find that your way of moving into life has been included and addressed. And I, I believe that it is. So any, even an atheist is included in this stages of faith. And as once you are aware of these, you can go into a public sphere and you can, you can assess people. <laughs> I hate to put it that way, but even people, I have friends who claim to be atheists and they are very clearly uh, stage three atheists. They, that's their stage of faith. Or you may be thinking, I've got this matter of faith settled by virtue of my conversion experience or through more gradual growth I've experienced in my religious community. My faith is clear and firm and tested. Why should I risk potential confusion by opening myself to look at faith as a human universal, which is how he presents it? Um, And I think there's a lot of people out there who probably feel that way in this audience. Why should I take seriously the faith experiences of people from other religions other than my own or even stranger why should i consider the faith patterns of people who don't even claim to be religious what have they to do with faith to you i want to affirm the largeness and mystery of faith so fundamental that none of us can live well for very long without it so universal that when we move beneath the symbols rituals and ethical patterns that express it faith is recognizably the same phenomenon in christians marxists hindus Dinka yet. It is so infinitely varied that each person's faith is unique. Now this is not a statement saying that, you know, all roads lead to Rome, that kind of thing. Um, the idea is that people are going through, he's using the word faith to refer to stages of development that are shared by all people and going into adulthood rather than just from childhood to adulthood. Right? Faith is inexhaustible. Uh, faith is inexhaustibly mysterious. Liveliness and continuing growth in faith require self-examination and readiness for encounter with the faith perspectives of others. Any of us can be illumined in our efforts to relate to the holy by the integrity we find in the faith stances of others, whether they are religious or non-religious. I believe faith is a human universal. We are endowed at birth with with nascent capacities for faith. How these capacities are activated and grow depends to a large extent on how we are welcomed into the world and what kinds of environments we grow in. Faith is interactive and social. That's very, very important. It requires community, language, ritual, nurture. Faith is also shaped by initiatives from beyond us and other people, initiatives of spirit or grace. How these latter initiatives are recognized and, Im- and imaged or unperceived or, and ignored powerfully affects the shape of faith in our lives. In these pages, I'm offering a theory of growth in faith. So he asks these questions. The ones you get the concept of the universality of faith from those excerpts and understand that regardless of what a person's stances are, when you as we go along in this video, when you see all the different things that people are connected to that those are your faith bonds if you will. Everybody has them. If if somebody has not killed themselves or they're not a a murderous psychopathic killer, then they have faith bonds with things in their life. And so we're gonna we're gonna discover what those are and I'm gonna highlight some key phrases that I want you to think about. Alright? Let's see how many people are calling us a <laughs> Some just want you to dunk on Calvinism. Exactly. That's the problem. And they're they are going to be in the mammon church for all their life. And I don't know if there's a lot we can do about some of those people. What are you spending and being spent for? What commands and receives your best time, your best energy? And think about people who disagree with you. Think about atheists and agnostics or uh, Buddhists answering these questions. What causes dreams, goals, or institutions are you pouring out your life for? What causes dreams... Goals or institutions are you pouring out your life Are you read causes as a verb instead of a noun for the first time. So the answers to these questions is essentially what constitutes your faith. As you live your life, what power or powers do you fear or dread? What power or powers do you rely on and trust? And you might say, well, I only rely on me. That's your faith. To what or whom are you committed in life, in death? With whom or what group do you share your most sacred and private hopes for your life and for the lives of those you love? What are those most sacred hopes, the most compelling goals and purposes in your life? And this makes me think of the book by Thomas More, a Religion of One's Own, which I think everybody should also read. Uh, maybe not when you're in stage three because you won't get it. Maybe after a tragedy. You haven't had people who accuse us of being heretics on this channel haven't haven't experienced a sufficient degree of tragedy in their life, I don't think. So what, um, we already looked at those questions, didn't we? What are you spending and being spent for? What we can do now is we can get rid of that. And now we can make this bigger so that we can see it better. Faith is not always religious in its content or context. To ask these questions seriously of oneself or others does not necessarily mean to elicit answers about religious commitment or belief. All right. Faith is a person or group's way of moving. A person's or group's way of moving into the force field of life. Now, don't confuse this with Star Wars and map it to Hinduism and say this is the devil. He's thinking later on. He explains this and he's talking about. He, he's going to use magnetic forces as an analogy of the of the forces of faith that we have in our life. He's not talking about the Star Wars faith or force. So, all those of you who are freaking out, trying to map us to Star Wars and Hinduism, just don't. It is our way of finding coherence in and giving meaning to the multiple forces and relations that make up our lives. That's a very important statement. Faith is a person's way of seeing him or herself in relation to others against the background of shared meaning and purpose. So when we're using the word faith, this is the kind of thing we're talking about. It's our way of finding coherence in and giving meaning to the multiple forces and relations that make up our lives. Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you, uh, do you socialize with people? Do you have a hobby? Um, do you go to church? Do you play any sports? All these things constitute, do you pay attention to politics? Are you in underneath some kind of governmental system? All these things are forces that have impact on you. The, the economic society in which you live. Faith is a person's way of seeing him or herself in relation to the others against the background of shared meaning and purpose. So it's not that people do or don't have faith, okay? If they're alive, they have faith in something. What is this view? What is their way of seeing themselves in relation to all the other things of which, with which they share meaning and purpose? That is their faith, all right? This is a little small. Let me see if I can make this a little bit bigger for you and that's one of the problems we find when we're trying to make things bigger in the 1950s paul tillich published a small book that became a classic dynamics of faith three struck a fresh note of honesty about the ways we order our lives and the hungers we have pushing aside a too easy identification of faith with religion or belief notice that you don't want to identify faith with religion or belief it's too easy Tillich challenges his readers to ask themselves what values have centering powers in their lives. So think of asking that to, say, an atheist or something. What values have centering powers in your life? I just had a discussion with my children uh, the other day about values. I tried to ask them, why did you do this instead of that? Why did you put on shoes instead of not wear shoes? Why did you tie them instead of not tie them? And I required them to answer the questions in terms of values. Uh So they're like, because I valued having clean feet and not stubbing my toes. I mean, they had to think of what they valued. Why did you tie your shoes? Because I valued um, not tripping over tripping, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. And that's a good exercise to do with kids to start them thinking in terms of values and choices, train up a child in the way he should go. We talked about that on the channel before. So help them determine by their values, what way should they go? And then you ask yourself what now, if you have values, there's a reason you put on your shoes. There's a reason you either did or didn't eat. There's a reason you did or did not go to the gym. You, If you have values, then then the values are arranged in some kind of hierarchy. What is at the top of that hierarchy of values? So you ask yourself what readers have, uh, what readers? Uh, Challenges readers to ask themselves, what values have centering powers in your life? So I want you to think about that. The God values in our lives and that's a little g on purpose. What is, the, what is the top of the value hierarchy? The God values in our lives are those things that concern us ultimately. And that is a phrase that I want to stick out and I want you to underline that and remember that and think about that. I'm going to highlight it here. The God values in our lives are those things that concern us ultimately. What is the ultimate concern? And I know a lot of you propositional Christian types, well, we want to go to heaven when we die. And for you, I'm going to rephrase this. What is your ultimate concern every day before you die? All right. Our real worship, our true devotion, directs itself toward the objects of our ultimate concern. That ultimate concern may center finally in our own ego or in its extensions, work, prestige, recognition, power and influence and wealth. One's ultimate concern may be invested in family, university, nation, church, Uh, Love, sex, and a loved partner might be the passionate center of one's ultimate concern. Ultimate concern is much more powerful than a claim to belief in a creed or a set of doctrinal propositions, okay? You got your statement of faith at your church, you got the systematic theology, you got the Baptist confession of faith, that kind of thing. Um, Your ultimate concern is much more powerful than any of those things. And that's where you need to understand that your faith is, your interactive, actioned faith is. Faith as a state of being ultimately concerned may or may not find its expression in institutional or cultic uh, religious forms. Now, when he says cultic, he's not being insulting. He's using it as the dictionary definition. Anybody with a shared set of beliefs is, is technically a cult. Okay? Um, the, are. Hispanic uh, Spanish-speaking people they use the word cultos like we use the word sect. Okay, we'd say a different sect of Christianity. They would say cultos, different cultos, and that's that's the dictionary definition. And so, if you have a set of beliefs and a Christian, and you share that with anybody else, that is a cult by definition. All right, and that's how he's using the term, not the like crazy aberrant stuff that we tend to think of, which the things that aren't considered cults are, are just as much cults as the stuff that we say they are. You need to understand that, too. Faith so understood is very serious business. that involves how we make our life wagers. It shapes the ways we invest our deepest loves and our most costly loyalties. About the same time Tillich was writing, another theologian, uh, H. Richard Nybor, worked out a similar approach to faith in an unpublished manuscript, probably because 1957 really found that portion of the book to be too far ahead of its time. Niebuhr carries out a searching description of what I want to call human faith. He sees faith taking form in our earliest relationships with those who provide care for us in infancy. infancy. He sees faith growing through our experience of trust and fidelity and of mistrust and betrayal with those closest to us. He sees faith in the shared visions and values that hold human groups together shared visions and values and I want you to think of temporal visions and values don't you, fundamentalist Christians don't be all heavenly minded your shared visions and values are, Oh, I'm gonna to go to heaven when I die Jesus gonna come back and get us think of ways you can have meaning in your day-to-day life before any of that happens how can you help people transform and become better versions of themselves here before you die before you go to heaven before Jesus Christ comes back and gets anybody okay before any of that happens that's what we want to focus on, and he sees faith at all all these levels and search for an overarching 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 integrated and grounded trust, and a center of value and power sufficiently worthy to give our lives unity and meaning um, so that's what we want to talk about when we're considering faith, okay faith at all these levels, an overarching integrated and grounding trust, and a center of value and power sufficiently worthy to give our lives unity and meaning. Faith, so Niebuhr and Tillich tell us, is a universal human concern. Prior to our being religious or irreligious, before we come to think of ourselves as Catholics, Protestants, Jews, or Muslims, we are already engaged with issues of faith. Whether we become non-believers, agnostics, or atheists, we are concerned with how to put our lives together and with what will make life worth living. And think about this in terms of atheists who are not suicidal or homicidal. I'm not saying any of them are. I'm just christians tend to have stereotypical views of atheists and i want you to understand that even atheists have this stuff you have a concern with how you put your life together and what will make your life worth living if you haven't killed yourself you've valued not dying over dying at some point and there's a reason for that that is your faith Moreover, we look for something to love that loves us, something to value that gives us value, something to honor and respect that has the power to sustain our being. He goes on, let me look at some of these comments in here. Helping people, hoping people are seeing the connections in the last few videos of Mammon Church Faith Crisis because these concerns are real and the people need to deal with these issues. It's not optional. Yeah, I totally agree with that there is a and thanks Seraphim an amazing show today Kevin glad to see you with Fowler I appreciate that we um if you don't get this straight I'm I'm thinking of three people who I know who grew up fundamentalist Christian who couldn't establish meaning in their life and committed suicide and I'm thinking of also many more people some of whom I'm close to some of whom I'm not so close to that are very nihilistic in their thinking. They have no agency in life. And when things go bad, their only thing to hope for or try to do about it is to escape from it. They want to run and hide. They want to go hide in a corner. Well, I guess the world's just better without me. I'm just going to take my dog and go and disappear. I'm just going to, they're nihilistic because the faith the mammon church faith that they've had has insulated them from reality rather than bolstering their agency in reality and we don't want to do that we want to have this kind of faith that bolsters our agency in reality and that's what we're trying to do here this is very very important Wilfred cantwell smith knows that this account he refers to a book that he wrote represents an ideal interaction of faith and religion as it occurs under the best of circumstances As an astute observer and participant in a contemporary religious situation, however, he knows how infrequently things operate according to this ideal. He recognizes with other keen observers that for many moderns, the relationship between faith and religion has become problematic. Smith says somewhat wistfully, faith is meant to be religious, but in fact, faith struggles to be formed and maintained in many persons today who feel they have no usable access to any viable cumulative religious tradition. This situation, Smith believes, results in part from certain confusions that have arisen in our understanding of religion, faith, and belief. And we want to try to help clear up those confusions today. Having demonstrated that faith needs to be distinguished from religion, Smith turns in more recent writings to the task of exposing, as an error, the widespread modern identification of faith with belief. So we want to distinguish those things. Now, I understand this. I understand that in the Bible, the word pistis or pisteo gets translated as faith and belief and believe interchangeably, okay? I understand that. Um, But for the sake of the discussion, that a distinction is made between faith and belief, and as you understand the distinction, hear it with ears to hear, hear it through rule omega, okay? So this is an, an... when, when he says it's distinct, it's uh, the, the error is identification of faith with belief. We're on slide 25. So, what, what we're talking about is these things right here. When people say faith, they're thinking of this and they're thinking of these things that we covered. Christians mistakenly act and think as if faith is a means by which we can magically take non-epistemically warranted propositions and put them into the ontological truth domain. You're mistaking faith with believing that something is true, okay? And for this reason Christians tend to think that Christians use the concept of faith to magically and lazily make epistemic rigor go away, and that perception is not completely unfounded. So that's what's going on there when he uses those words, okay? Where were we? This situation, Smith believes, results in part from certain confusions that have arisen in our understanding of faith and belief. Okay. White's the error is modern identification of faith with belief. That's where we were. This is an error both in in an accurate reading of the history of religious traditions and in any adequate effort to describe the nature and functions of faith. So we're going to look at these. I must have copied that one twice. So Smith characterizes faith in contrast to belief. Here's what Smith says. Faith is deeper, richer, more personal. It's engendered by a religious tradition in some cases and to some degree by its doctrines, but it is is a quality of the person, not of the system. It's an orientation of the personality to oneself, to one's neighbor, to the universe, A total response this notice it's an orientation notice how, how much convergence there is with the language here with some of the stuff we've been talking about on the channel it's a way of seeing whatever one sees and of handling whatever one handles a capacity to live at more than a mundane level to see to feel to act in terms of a transcendent dimension and the way I heard Jordan Peterson describe this recently is from an old video back before he even had gray hair He said, what we're concerning ourselves with is we are, there's no way we can understand everything. And so therefore we are finite beings up against an infinite world. And how we meet out that engagement with the infinite is essentially where religion comes in. And it is essentially a recognition that there are a lot of things we can't possibly know. So we don't use faith to make them to just state what we think they are and then require people to affirm that, or we burn them at the stake. That's not what we do with faith. What we do is we understand we, we can have a relationship with the transcendent dimension of the things that we don't know, even though we don't know them to put yourself properly oriented with respect to those things. Smith writes again, faith then is a quality of human living at its best. It has taken the form of serenity and courage and loyalty and service. And there's another passage by um, Jordan Peterson where he refers to faith as courage. And we might put that in part two. Uh, And loyalty and service, a quiet confidence and joy which enable one to feel at home in the universe and to find meaning in the world and in one's own life, a meaning that is profound and ultimate and is stable no matter what may happen to oneself at the level of the immediate event. Men and women of this kind of faith face catastrophe, confusion, affluence sorrow unperturbed they face opportunity with conviction and drive and they face others with cheerful charity in his two most recent books belief in history and faith and belief from which i have already quoted smith gives a persuasive demonstration that the language dealing with faith in the classical writings of the major religious traditions never speaks of it in ways that can be translated by modern meanings of belief and believing. So if you think of the way we use the word belief today and you go back and you read something from, say, the third century, you can't read your understanding of the word belief back into how they are using it. You have to understand what they meant when they said it. And that's, this is key. And I want you to get this rather faith involves an alignment of the heart or will a commitment of loyalty and trust his treatment of the hindu term for faith shraddha perhaps puts it best it means almost without equivocation to set one's heart on to set one's heart on someone or something requires that one has seen or sees the point of that to which one is loyal if you can see clearly you don't need anybody else's descriptions of the view. You can see clearly. Faith, therefore, involves vision. It is a mode of knowing or acknowledgement, of acknowledgement. One commits oneself to that which is known or acknowledged and lives loyalty, loyally with life and character being shaped by that commitment. Okay. Different than just believing that things are true. I apologize for the small text, but I'm trying to capture all this together. The Hebrew and the Greek words for faith, the Greek pisteu, pistis, and the Latin word credo or credere, words for faith parallel those from Buddhist, Muslim, and Hindu sources. They cannot mean belief or believing in the modern sense. For the ancient Jew or Christian to have said, I believe there is a God, or I believe God exists, would have been a strange uh, circumlocution. The being or existence of God was taken for granted and therefore was not an issue. Smith's treatment of the Latin term credo, usually translated in Christian creedal statements as I believe, this this is key and important, it illuminates a more adequate understanding of the classical and biblical declarations of faith, declarations of faith credo he finds and this is a quote from smith's book is a compound from core cordia like heart cardio as english cordial or accord or concord and the like. compared also from the closely parallel uh, greek cognate not creek i got this uh this text is copied out from ocr optical character recognition so some of these things didn't carry over right Greek cognate cardia, the English derivatives cardiac, electrocardiogram, for example. Uh, so, it's a compound from the word cardia, heart, plus, do, put, place, set, and also give. The first meaning of the compound in classical Latin had been in its primary meaning, continued to be to entrust, to commit, to trust something to someone, and of money to lend. A second meaning in secular usage was to trust in or to rely upon, or to place confidence in. There would seem little question, but that as a crucial term used at a crucial moment in a crucial liturgical act of personal engagement, namely Christian baptism, credo came close to its root meaning of I set my heart on. So when you see the word believe in the Bible, it's not just Affirm that something is epistemically true or ontologically true. Rather, the the idea is: I set my heart on; I give my heart to; I hereby give my heart to Christ. I herein give my heart to the Father, or more generally, I hereby commit myself to, or something like: I pledge allegiance. Right. So when you see the word believe that's what we're getting at. That when, think of that when you see the word believe and faith in the Bible. not so much to just affirm that a proposition is true. <clears throat> In a fascinating study of the evolution of the English words believe and belief, Smith shows that the early translations of Pisteo and Credo into I believe were not essentially mistaken for, and by the way, credo, that's where you get the word creed, creeds and confessions, that kind of thing. I believe we're not essentially mistaken for until the early modern period, 16th century and on, by the way, 16th century, is the 1500s and if you're speaking English most of your Bibles came from the 1600s or later all right <clears throat> so and then things changed around that time for until the early modern period 16th century on believe carried much the same range of meaning as that associated with to set the heart upon he writes literally and originally to believe means to hold dear virtually to love Modern German usage of Belieben still means to cherish or to hold dear, and the modern German term for faith, Glaube, can be traced back to common roots with a family of old English words, Leof, Leof, dear, beloved, that form of the word, Gleifon, and Gleifon, and Galiffen, to hold dear, to love, to consider valuable or lovely. This parallels the old high German, Gleuban, which, which has the same meaning. This word developed into Glauben, to have faith. And if you look up the online etymology dictionary, believe uh, comes from the word beloved to set your heart on. That's where the word comes from. So this is very crucial to understand these words, dear and beloved, to hold dear to love. Our word for believe comes from that. Not just, not just assenting that something is true. Like you could say someone you loved was killed in a car accident. And you would believe that they were killed, but you would not love that, you see? You would not hold that dear. The fact that they died isn't what you would hold dear, you see? The person that you believed in that died is what you would hold dear. And that's how the word would be used at the time. Gradually after the 16th century, especially in the 17th and 18th centuries, secular usage of the words belief and believe began to change. Following by about a century, religious and ecclesiastical usage underwent the same changes. So we had problems creeping into the churches from these linguistic changes. Using the same word as before, but now it has started to change meanings in our minds, which causes the whole shebang to completely change. The change Smith has in mind, uh, by the 19th century, Smith asserts the change was virtually complete. The change Smith has in mind is summarized in one of his most pithy paragraphs. He says, there was a time when I believe as a ceremonial declaration of faith meant and was heard as meaning given the reality of God as a fact of the universe. I hereby proclaim that I align my life accordingly, pledging love and loyalty. That's what I believe would convey that that kind of thinking. A statement about a person's believing has now come to mean rather something of this sort. Given the uncertainty of God is a fact of modern life, so-and-so reports the idea of God as part of the furniture of his mind. Notice the difference between those. I'm agreeing to have God as part of the furniture of my mind. When Christians say, I believe in God, therefore I think I'm saved and I'm a Christian and I believe and therefore that's my salvation. Do you get sealed by the Spirit after you believe? Do you get regenerated before or after you believe? They're thinking of this kind of thing. And... No, it's more like something like this. It's aligning your life accordingly, pledging love and loyalty. Not just believing that, but believing in and on and trusting. Endearing. He sees the broad movements in this transition from the cultural meaning of believe and belief. First, the object referred to with the word almost always was understood as personal when belief was first used to translate credo and pisteo but in the 19th and 20th centuries, it far more frequently has a proposition as its object. I believe that, X, Y, Z. Second, I believe that cats are mammals. Okay. Second, in the early usage, the subject of the verb to believe was almost always in the first person singular or plural, I believe, we believe. In the present era, statistically, it is far more likely to be found with third person subjects. He or she believes, they believe. Third, there has been a shift in reporting from what is believed as true to what is believed as a neutral or non-committal import to what is believed as likely to be erroneous or false. These linguistic shifts to which Smith points are causally and symptomatically related to a larger cultural shift or movement. And so if you're trying to read these ancient documents and get, you know, <laughs> resources with which to construct your future self, you need to understand these shifts and the meanings of these terms. Okay? So there's a cultural shift in movement, and you are on the back end of that cultural shift in movement, so you need to take your brain and go use some perspectival knowing and go back in time in history and see how these words were used when they were first being used so that you can understand what prop what your proper relationship is with the terminology termed voraciously as secularization religious disenchantment or modernism this movement has given rise to an essentially new form of consciousness it has construed knowledge as empirically demonstrable facts it has subordinated ethics and aesthetics to what works or what is workable It has reduced intimacy to sexuality and inflated sexuality to fetishism, and I think that's kind of what Paul is getting at in Ephesians five. He'll say love, yes, the love of Christ, but not all this fornication and stuff. I'm trying to don't reduce intimacy to sexuality, and don't inflate sexuality to fetishism, that kind of thing. Don't don't mix the stuff up. In other words, if you are involved in some kind of fornication, whatever, don't be confused and be thinking that's love That's <laughs> that Ephesians 5.2 is talking about. It has come to see faith as a belief or a belief system. Now I'm going to highlight that. Belief or a belief system. So what do you mean a belief system? A propositionally, you know, semantically disambiguated belief system comprised of propositional conclusions like this nonsense it has come to see faith as a belief or a belief system and in what passes for tolerance and understanding maintains a dogmatic attitude of relativism regarding the truth or appropriateness of all such systems of belief so (laughs) if you think of somebody saying a system of belief is false if you're thinking propositionally yes if you're thinking the belief in those things are false, yes, it is propositionally wrong. But something could also, if you don't take, if you understand believe in the right way, you could take something that has a mythopoetic narrative that isn't exactly factually true, and it could also be used to help transform somebody into a better person. I'm not saying they could all do that. I think some things just bring forth bad fruit evil communications corrupt good manners. He says, I caricature here, but the point I'm trying to bring out is one Smith develops more thoroughly. So pervasive is the impact of the secularizing consciousness that even religionists and persons of faith have tended to accept the culture's truncation of belief into assent to a set of propositions or commitment to a belief system. Now, what What Fowler does not have the benefit of when he's writing this book, I think around 1990 or so, he does not have uh, Pierre Hidot and John Verveke having hashed out the four kinds of knowing in a very clearly articulated, uh, taxonomized understanding, which is very, very helpful. But he still gets it. He still gets the four kinds of knowing here. And what he's saying is that reducing this stuff truncating it belief into a set of propositions this is yeah is not good or to a, of a commitment to a belief system you know set a bunch of semantically disambiguated propositions is what a belief system is a meme complex so your belief your faith cannot be truncated into that should not be truncated into that and that's something that you want to avoid all right and When I say avoid that, it's not just it would be nice. You're going to be nihilistic if you don't avoid that. You're going, you're you're kids. You may live in a bubble. You may be married for uh, 44 years and think everything is okay. And then you have to watch the lives of your kids fall apart because you grew them up in this bubble without having the sagacity to see the error in which you raised them. All right? And you'll see them running around in, in booty shorts, not having many kids, and not being in a godly church. Some of you get that as a joke, as an allusion to something else that happened on this channel. Uh, sometimes I have to clarify my jokes because people don't get them. I have a dry sense of humor. Many modern Westerners, when encountering someone from other religion tra- religious tradition, are likely to ask, what do you or they believe, as if that were the key question. You know what are your beliefs what's your belief system what are the propositions that are in your belief system Smith's careful work with a cumulative impact I can scarcely hope to communicate here helps us see that curiosity about what they believe to reach any significant level of depth has to come from the question of faith on what or whom do you set your heart to what vision of right relatedness between humans nature and the transcendent are you loyal What hope and what ground, you recognize these questions from when we started doing this? These are the questions we started with, okay? What hope and what ground of hope animate you and give shape to the force field of your life and how you move into it, okay? So if you were to meet somebody from another religion, maybe ask questions like that rather than list off your propositional beliefs to me. And I will see that they don't match and that will trigger my nervous system to to use judgment to spot that something is outside my paradigm and then i will argue with you in accordance with a formulaic script that i got from somebody else because i'm a programmed npc you don't want to be that now we're getting close <clears throat> to the end here got just a few more slides we're, we're about to cover slide 35 and we got 42 and we'll be done but this is very important i want you to follow along The failure to probe beneath this shallowing of faith equating it with modern understanding of belief means to perpetuate and widen the modern divorce of faith and belief. And I would add on to that: perpetuate and widen the meaning crisis that is causing so many people to wallow in mental illness and nihilism in their life. If faith is reduced to belief in creedal statements and doctrinal formulations like this nonsense, then sensitive and responsible persons are likely to judge that they must live without faith. So in other words, if when we say faith, if we think faith is this kind of nonsense, then our atheist counterparts are correct for denouncing it and denying it and choosing to live without faith. If this is what it is, they're correct in that. And I join them in living without that. But now let's, Say, but if faith is understood as trust in another and loyalty to a transcendent center of value and power, then the issue of faith and the possibility of religious faith becomes lively and open again. You see? And I think that this would this could and I'm not trying to use a bait and switch here because I'm not trying to take anybody back to the fundamentalism that plagued and ruined my life, but I do think that understanding faith properly uh, could make some, could help some of our atheist and agnostic counterparts. Um, and I, I, I'll be honest with you. I think that there's more hope for them to get a life that has meaning and transformation than there are for people who still accept level three propositional ty- style Christianity fundamentalism. I think the fundamentalist Christians are perhaps in the worst state of anybody as far as what hope do they have of transforming into something good and useful and effective and agentic. And it's very troubling to me. Smith's work makes an extraordinary contribution to our grasping need for re-imaging faith, like rebranding it, you know. No summary can adequately evoke the rich new perspective that results from a meditative reading of these writings that Smith wrote, but perhaps I have shared enough to enable us to benefit from a review of his major conclusions, so let's look at his major conclusions. He says, number one, faith, rather than belief or religion, is the most fundamental category in the human quest for relation to transcendence. Faith, it appears, is generic as a universal feature of human living recognizably similar everywhere despite the remarkably variety of, a remarkable variety of forms and contents of religious practices and belief. Two, each of the major religious traditions studied speaks about faith in ways that make the same phenomenon visible. In each and all, faith involves an alignment of the will, a resting of the heart, in accordance with a vision of transcendent value and power in one's ultimate concern. There's that phrase again, in one's ultimate concern. Three, faith, classically understood, is not not a separate dimension of life, not like, like a compartmentalized speciality, like I separate work and religion, it's not like that. You take your faith with you to work and that's what makes you work well. Faith is an orientation of the total person, giving purpose and goal to one's hopes and strivings, thoughts, and actions. It's orientation. It means you're aimed at something and you're working hard to become that, and you're agopically helping other people also aim at something and work toward becoming that. The, unit, the unity and recognizability of faith, despite the myriad of variants of religions and beliefs, support the struggle to maintain and develop a theory of religious relativity in which... The religions and the faith they evoke and shape are seen as relative apprehensions of our relatedness to that which is universal. Relative apprehensions to our relatedness to that which is universal. Um, He's talking about parallax there, perspectival knowing. This work toward a universal theory as to the relation between truth itself and truth articulated in the midst of the relativity of human life and history represents a rejection of faith and relativism. And serves as a commitment to press the question of truth in the living and in the study of faith. And I wanted to read that sentence without the parenthetical part, which says the philosophy of relativism, the philosophy or common sense of view that religious claims and experience have no necessary validity beyond the bounds of the communities that hold them. So rejection of faith and relativism and serves as a commitment to press the question of truth in the living and in the study of faith couple more things a little diagram here now this is this s over here stands for self this o over here stands for others and when you relate to another person this scvp is a shared center of value and power and if you want to see that written down it's right there shared centers of value and power <laughs> above along the baseline of the triad we see the two way flow between the self and others of love, mutual trust, and loyalty that makes selfhood possible. Above the baseline, at the point of the triad, this is talking about some of those force fields of life. This is a, this is a diagram and an explanation of that. And there are other diagrams in the book which I recommend that you read and see. Above the baseline, at the point of the triad, we see a representation of the family's shared centers of value and power. And if, some, if the word power triggers some of you, think influence. There it doesn't matter. Okay, rule omega this. This includes the family story as its recognized and unrecognized collection of formative myths. Both self and others invest trust and loyalty and rest their hearts upon this center of these centers, or these centers. Of course, it's never quite this simple. Family members' degrees of awareness in the central myths and values they serve will greatly vary. Each member of a family probably participates in other non familiar non-familial faith triads with their different values and power centers. Moreover, all human associations, including including the family, are dynamic. What that means is the members change, and their personal and corporate centers of value and power must evolve and be renewed. So there's a constant cycle of renewal there. Nonetheless, the triad, with its depiction and structure of mutual trust and loyalties, discloses the essential covenantal pattern of faith as a relational. So notice how, like I I knew a family one time who they knew their family story all the way back to before the Civil War. Like they knew all the names, they knew all the people, and all the people in the family knew this, all right? And there was actually still a person that hung around the family whose ancestors used to be slaves of the family. And they chose to stay with the family and keep working with the family because they had such a good relationship to this day, as far as I know. Um, at least that was the case. I mean, it's been 20 years since I was around that, so I don't know if all of those people are still alive, but you get the idea. And so you think about how people in a family interact with each other versus how they would interact with people outside the family, okay? And think about people you interact with who you've all seen the same movies and been to the same places. You probably have a lot of inside jokes. And you probably react and interact with people like that differently than with people who don't fit that criteria. Your shared centers of values and powers, okay? So every person you encounter, cashier at the grocery store or the guy who's trying to rob you in the alley, okay? There is some kind of interactive shared centers of value and power under which you are interacting. And the more cordial and pleasant the experience, the more you share, the more you have in common. it comes to the centers of value and power we you value the same things if you both walk away happy with what with what happened during the exchange in german one of the terms for imagination is the compound word (laughs) in bildungskraft literally the power craft of forming building into one ein here I want us to reflect about faith as a kind of imagination. Now, John Verveke would probably say the word "imaginol" here rather than imagination to distinguish between a child's imagination of what will never be to imaginol of something that is possible to bring into pass. If you work at it, faith forms a way of seeing our everyday life in relation to holistic images of what we may call the ultimate environment. And it is infinite so you don't know what it all is human action always involves responses and initiatives we shape our action our responses and initiatives in accordance with what we see to be going on we seek to fit our actions into or oppose them to larger patterns of action and meaning faith in it's binding us to centers of value and power in it's triadic joining us into communities of shared trust and loyalties gives us form and content to our imaging of an ultimate environment so all these interactions that you have all these little triangular interactions with hit, that you have with every other entity that is out there, whether it's a person or a group or an object or an animal, all those things, that forms your imaging, your imagining, your image of what reality is, of, of the ultimate environment as far as your perception is concerned. He says, I remember the day my eighth grade science teacher brought the electromagnetics, uh Ele- brought the electromagnet magnet mag- magnets and little jars of iron filings to our mountain classroom scattered over a piece of white notebook paper the black filings we call them Superman shavings lay in a random disarray then we brought two electromagnetic magnets into place one at either end of the paper and connected the current impressively the iron filings danced into a symmetrical oval pattern As we tap the paper lightly, they formed force lines. This is what he's talking about when he says the force fields of life. They formed force, force lines running smoothly from one magnet to the other. So all the iron filings separated into different kinds of little rows there. Spreading in the middle like seams of a cantaloupe. The lines graphically revealed the pattern of the magnetic force field. And I think this is a very powerful image. When the first time I read this, I was kind of blown away by this because... It helps you to imagine that the stuff of your life is kind of like those iron filings. And as you are being pulled to and fro with demands at home and demands at work and demands from the kids or from people at church or from the people you play volleyball with or from the mailman um, and the hobbies that you're involved with, the the demands that they are pulling in different directions on you and the stuff of life kind of lines up in a certain way, then that is your vision of life. And the more the stronger connection you have to those things that have that you value highly, the more meaning you will have in life. And if you supplement all of those connections and stick a belief system in the middle of them, you're going to have less meaning in life. You're going to live a less fulfilled life. And you're going to become non-agentic is it's it has the same reciprocal narrowing effect on you as an addiction does if you are addicted to something which gives you less agency and less capacity in the world a belief system which insulates you from that environment also does the same thing it makes those connections you have with all these other things less authentic and and weaker so there's a prox there's a proxy in there now In this statement, there's the word poeta, okay? And you say, what on earth? Homo poeta. What does that mean? Well, the word poesis. I knew you would ask. The word poesis is the activity in which a person brings something into being that did not exist before. You hear some people say autopoesis, poesis, and that is uh, you authoring your future self. I am in the process right now of constructing the identity of future Kevin, okay? So autopoiesis. So when you say homopoiesis, that is bringing into being the man, the act of bringing the man into being, or the man that needs to be into being, who he's becoming. With that in mind, we live our lives in a dynamic field of forces, in dynamic fields of forces, in contrast to the bipolar orderliness shaped by the pull of the magnets we are impinged upon pulled at and moved from many directions part of what we mean when we say that humankind homo poeta lives by meaning is that from the beginning of our lives we are faced with the challenge of finding or composing some kind of order unity and coherence in the force fields of our lives all these different things tugging us in all these different directions you have to you have to get some kind of order and unity and coherence in, in the directionality of all those forces tugging on you. We might say that faith is our way of discerning and committing ourselves to the centers of value and power that exert ordering force that exert ordering force in our lives. How do you orient yourself to those things? Faith as imagination. Grasps the ultimate conditions of our existence, unifying them into a comprehensive image in light of which we shape our responses and initiatives and actions. So you behave appropriately in accordance with the image that is created in your mind by your perception of all the forces that are tugging on you and how you value. The connection that you have with those forces tugging on you. That's where faith comes. So you can see, you should be able to see that every agnostic and atheist has some degree of faith, regardless of how aware they are of it. And I think that calling awareness to these tugging forces in our life is, is essential in order to grow wisdom, to grow a good relation with wisdom. Now we must unpack this idea a bit. Notice that we continue to speak of faith as a verb. Okay, Think of process theology. Alfred North Whitehead. Nothing is stagnant. Nothing can sit there. It has to be moving. In nature, if something's not moving, it's dead. Okay? There has to be some kind of process going on. And this is the last slide, by the way. Notice that we continue to speak of faith as a verb. Here we see that the aspect of faith in which it composes a felt image of the conditions of existence grasped as a whole... Faith, in this sense, is a dynamic process arising out of our experiences of interaction with the diverse persons, institutions, and events, and relationships that make up the stuff of our lives. So it's not a set of beliefs. It's a dynamic process, meaning dynamic process means there's a complexity to it. There's something that's always shifting and moving, and you're constantly adapting to it. You're constantly improving. You're constantly calibrating, constantly re-aiming. It's a dynamic process arising out of our experiences and interaction with the diverse persons, institutions, and events, and relationships that make up the stuff of our lives. Faith is an imaginative process, as an imaginative process, is awakened and shaped by these interactions and by the images, symbols, rituals, and conceptual representations offered with conviction in the language and common life of those with whom we learn and grow. Faith, then, is an active mode of knowing of composing a felt sense or image of the condition of our lives taken as a whole, it unifies our lives' force fields. Think of the magnets. Think of the tension. Unifies our lives' force fields. So you have this imaginal representation, almost like this uh, spider web overlay between you and all the other components and entities of life, institutions, people, all the things. God, ultimate reality, quantum physics, uh, Hello Kitty, anything you can think of. Whatever your relationship is to all the things, and which ones you value, that is the faith in which you are operating. That is your world you're operating in. Okay, So faith does not make non-epistemically warranted things true. Now I'm going to go back and hit on that again. Christians mistakenly act, now that you have heard all of that, which comes out of this book, which I highly recommend you get and read the whole thing. Now that you have heard all that, Christians mistakenly act as if and think as if faith is a means by which we can magically take non-epistemically warranted uh, propositions and put them into the ontological truth domain. That's not what faith is for. For this reason, non-Christians tend to think that Christians use the concept of faith to magically and lazily make epistemic rigor go away. And, perception is not completely, and that perception is not completely unfounded. In other words, Christians are guilty of this. And I'm trying to provoke Christians to no longer be guilty of this. Start loving the Lord your God with all your mind. Put some skin in the game. Put some mind in the game. Put some brain in the game. So we looked at the two different versions of faith. Down here at the bottom, faith is a moralistic commitment. The Mammon Church to affirm systematically disambiguated propositions absent phenomenological or epistemic veracity. And what that leads to in the Mammon Church, it leads to nihilism. It leads to not having meaning in your life. It leads to mental illness, suicidal ideation, cynicism, resentment, okay? Witch hunts. leads to all kinds of bad things. We have no use for that. That is not what we mean by faith. Faith. My little short definition, which doesn't do justice to what we just looked at, but it's an agopic, interactive social connectedness and commitment to fortify the healthy bonds of tension with all meaningful entities and activities in life. All right. So I hope that this video helped reshape some concepts when it comes to the idea of faith from here out on the channel. When we use the word faith, We are using it like this. And I think that this is an accurate representation of how the words show up in scripture. We are using it like this. We are not using it as the mammon church uses it. I'm gonna take a second and see if we have some things in the chat um, that catch my interest. I I don't see a whole lot of stuff. I'm hoping I haven't lost connectivity. But you never know these days. So. All right. Anyway. So we're going to go ahead and and, uh, wrap this up. Uh, Thanks for watching. May the Lord bless you. And good day.